the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to the fifth transmission of Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and ontological. I'm Sean and as ever, I'm here with Lucy. Hello. This week we're shifting gear and throwing ourselves into lurid artificiality as we witness the rise of the war machines and the psychotic return of the mystical as we take on the subject of cyberpunk. Right, so cyberpunk is an extremely broad and complex uh, subgenre of science fiction, uh, but it basically refers to a loosely connected set of thematic and stylistic concepts, the basic tenets of which uh, centre upon humanity's relationship with technology and electronic media. Uh, this consists of things like mass media with a particular, uh, a kind of distinctively postmodern sense of image saturation and the overwhelming intensity of uh, media and uh, media images. Um, This also chimes closely with the Marxist notion of late stages capitalism, uh, which we'll go into a bit later. Um, It has a very prominent element of computers, uh, mass data, and their increasingly prominent role in daily life, including examples of uh, the more extreme variants of uh, virtual reality and the idea of cyberspace. Um, It also has things to do with drugs, uh, biohacking and manipulation of the body, as well as ideas such as transhumanism and essentially the redefinition of humanity via the influence of machines. In terms of thinking about where it falls in the evolution of science fiction, it kind of marks a continuation of what we saw in what's described as the new wave of science fiction of the 1960s, represented by figures like Philip K. Dick, Michael Moorcock, uh, M. John Harrison, and of course, uh, J.G. Ballard. Oh as, boy. Our boy, ba- our boy Ballard. <laughs> uh, as well as people like uh, William S. Burroughs, who was kind of crossover between science fiction and kind of beat writers generation. Yes, and there are strong um, quasi-science fiction elements in, uh, in his in his work, well, actually, not even crazy. They're just outright moments of uh, pure weird sci-fi uh, yeah. goodness. Especially in the cities of the Red Knight, uh, in Naked Lunch itself, as an element of that. And what a lot of what he did was kind of drawing on uh, very kind of pulpy trends of earlier twentieth-century science fiction, but in an attempt to merge it with his own kind of. Um, his own kind of ideas, put his own slant on a lot of things and uh, bring it into a much more kind of modern cutting edge context. Uh, and indeed, a lot of the um, what's regarded as the primary texts of cyberpunk, uh, things like uh, Burroughs' The Wild Boys, as well as J.G. Ballard's Crash, did in fact kind of emerge out of this period even though cyberpunk itself was something that was more kind of consciously formulated in the 1980s. Um, But in terms of of the history of science fiction, uh, this actually links to a lot of what we were talking about uh, in our episode on Shivers, uh, when we were talking about J.G. Ballard and the influence on Cronenberg. Um, And that was uh, looking at um, the... The kind of the modernist disruption of selfhood that was represented by um, by figures like J.G. Ballard drawing on the surrealists, and essentially um, what what cyberpunk was doing was kind of approaching very much the same questions, but through a, a kind of a more kind of contemporary gaze or a, a very novel and um, uh, technology influenced gaze. It was kind of like when we were talking about with Shivers, with the exploded consciousness, um, that was this through machines. Uh, 
in terms of thinking about uh, the formalization of the term cyberpunk, um, it actually has a rough manifesto of sorts, which came through the uh, the author Bruce Sterling uh, in an introduction to an anthology of uh, uh, cyberpunk fiction that he put together entitled Mirror Shades. But kind of what differed between, say, between the 1960s and the 1980s um, was that there were obviously kind of technological shifts um, happening in that time. Um, but as well as that, there were changes like um, a kind of an increased public and popular consciousness around ideas of media communications. Um, this was popularized by figures like uh, Marshall McLuhan, uh, who introduced, who um, who wrote an influential book called The Gutenberg Galaxy or The Making of the Typographic Man in the early. 60s uh, that introduced the concept of the global village or the kind of globally connected world, the world made small through the kind of hyper processing of information. Um, he also was the one that popularized the term the medium is the message. Uh, so talking about kind of the confluence of technology and human ideology and the crossing over points there. Uh, it's an interesting point that actually um, uh, talking, about, talking about shivers. Cronenberg um, had actually been aware of these concepts um, largely because he um, studied at the University of Toronto, I believe, um, and was uh, studying directly under Marshall McLuhan, and so inherited a lot of these ideas. And um, these would obviously become something of an influence in his own later, more cyberpunk influence movies, such as uh, Videodrome and Existence. Yeah, it's interesting as well with um, the manifesto Mirror Shades, as it were, that um, the notion that Mirror Shades themselves, as a, as an object, have almost power, have trope status within cyberpunk, and are almost a shorthand for cyberpunk. Uh, Landro, in, Nick Landro, in one of his essays from the nineties, um, when discussing global techno capitalist um, induced um, cultural meltdown, he wrote. Meltdown has a place for you as a schizophrenic, HIV-positive, transsexual, Chinese-Latino-stim-addicted LA hooker with implanted mirror shades and a bad attitude. So yeah, there you go, lovely fellow. Um, uh, <laughs> we've done our Nick Land disclaimer. We've done our Nick Land disclaimer. <laughs> Cyberpunk often has a certain implicit uh, critical dimension to it, especially with regards to well, regards to the entirety of what it's depicting, but especially uh, mass media and late capitalism. Mm. I think there's perhaps a rep- cyberpunk has a bit of a reputation for being having a nihilistic uh, element to it, but I think that's to assume that if um, a work doesn't have an obvious um, oblique moral to it, if there isn't a character who takes a stance. Uh, there's the assumption that the novel itself or the work itself doesn't carry with it a certain condemnation of what it's um, portraying. It doesn't uh, need to have someone tell you that this is bad for it to be obvious that this is bad. Uh, at least that's a certainly a response that you can make uh, against that. There is certain, There are certainly forms of cyberpunk which are just outright nihilistic, which are taking a certain delight in what they're depicting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is kind of something that is at the heart of... Um, at the heart of what made cyberpunk as its own genre distinct from um, the new wave of science fiction of earlier decades, uh, this kind of philosophical shift. And that's kind of really where the second part of the portmanteau punk comes in. Uh, the kind of the, the punk sensibility, uh, which is kind of anarchic, it's anti-authoritarian, and it can go a number of ways because it can be associated with this kind of pessimistic nihilism. But embedded in that is something kind of liberating and... Um, 
liberating and um, and freeing and you know challenging to authority. This is indeed this is what the cybernetic culture research unit uh, at Warwick in the nineties, like we said last week, Lam was involved with. That's precisely what they were trying to do. That's uh, they felt that within late stage uh, global techno capitalism, in that it was um, deleting traditions and dismantling traditional structures of authority, like um, state control of the economy, but it was actually producing a possibility for a new state of uh, liberatory post-human intensity. Mm. Um, but kind of what really defined uh, cyberpunk was um, whatever its overarching uh, motivation, um, it did kind of have this to some extent like kind of sometimes nasty, sometimes nihilistic, sometimes just kind of um, wanton, kind of cr uh, slightly maddened joy in the kind of pervading horror of the situation they find themselves in with uh, be that kind of via kind of media saturation or, um, or the kind of model of late capitalism. And it was kind of epitomized by what people describe as hipness. And this is where kind of post-modernity comes in. Uh, the kind of embracing of the shallowness and the um, championing championing of the image um, that was kind of identified with what's described as kind of the MTV generation that emerged out of the late 70s, early 80s. Um, but kind of, yeah, that this um, in turn was um, perceived alongside a kind of pragmatic optimism, things like a kind of neo or neo-transhumanism came in and also ideas like xenofeminism, which um, is kind of is in fact still developing. There's some people doing some very interesting work on it now. And as uh, you know, feminists are, I believe there are exp like explicit statements of heirs of the legacy of CCRU. Absolutely. And and, uh, well, and the, uh, the just that very very strange project that happened at Warwick in the nineties. Mm. Mm. But uh, along with this is this idea that um, it was kind of. This was a disruption of the old order in a way that kind of the uh, the accelerationists and people like the CCIU talk about, um, with this idea that kind of knowledge became power in a very very literal and direct sense. Uh, but it was um, a specialized power, specialized knowledge, and power through specialized knowledge. But it was increasingly accessible knowledge. And while kind of vast corporations and things are often um, identified as kind of being the holders of this power and the means of production, this was something that spilled over into the hands of the people. And so kind of very much the archetypal figure of uh, cyberpunk in a lot of cases was this, was the, was the image of the hacker, this kind of urban techno gorilla who was a law unto themselves. This was, um, this tendency was also um, arguably um, pre, uh, preconceived or detected by uh, Deleuze and Guattari in their work Anti-Oedipus. And uh, Nick Land sort of like famously quotes the passage from Anti-Oedipus in his essay, which I quoted from uh, earlier, Meltdown, which I should read here because it's just a, a fantastic little piece of writing. Which is the revolutionary path? Deleuze and Guattari ask, is there one? To withdraw from the world market, as Samir Armin advises third, advises third world countries to do, in a curious reversal of the fascist economic solution? Or might it go in the opposite direction, to go still further, that is, in the movement of the market, of decoding and deterritorialization? For perhaps the flows are not yet deterritorialized enough, not decoded enough, from the viewpoint of a theory and practice of a highly schizophrenic character. Not to withdraw from the process, but to go further, to accelerate the process, as Nietzsche put it. In this matter, the truth is that we haven't seen anything yet. And just ultimately, kind of at the heart of cyberpunk is that idea of oh, the uh, first part of the portmanteau, cybernetic. Uh, it means kind of literally governance, but referred to the kind of governance of machines. But um, what well, makes... Well, specifically, it means sort of like um, a self-reinforcing regulatory mechanism. Yes. Mm. 
that can become kind of circular in its uh, in in some cases, or you know, have a re- have a well, reciprocal relationship. Well, the chi, the psi bit, literally, is from the Greek for circle. Yes. Yes. Um, and um, in terms of like kind of technical innovation, one of the things that stands out about cyberpunk is very much that the technology made it because. Um, or the technology made it what it was. Because in earlier forms of science fiction, we did have visionary ideas. We had things like supercomputers. We had artificial intelligence. We had mass surveillance and mass media communication, even things like climate apocalypse. Um, if we think back to J.G. Ballard's The Drowned World and other kind of film, uh, other books of that series. But um, to earlier writers, these were very much speculative ideas. And they had a kind of utopian quality to them. Um, whereas now they were something that was one kind of a lot closer to home, um, but it was also something that was inexorably tied uh, with the idea of capitalism and consumerism. Basically, the future was here and it was goddamn trash. Which is why tonight we're talking about hardware. This yes. is what you want. This, this is, is what you get. get. This is what This want. is Angry Bob. This is Angry Bob, the man with the industrial dick, coming at you loud and clear on WAR Radio. Rise and shine, folks. It's a beautiful day. Just look at that sky. It's a work of art. Ha! Nature never knew colors like that. And a friendly reminder, when you look at it, be sure to wear your shades. The radiation counts way up and the heat wave ain't expected to let up either. Weather control tell us it'll probably hit 110 downtown before nightfall. As for the good news, there is no fucking good news. So let's rock with one of our golden oldies. Hardware is a British-American sci-fi horror thriller that came out in 1990. It was the directorial debut of South African filmmaker Richard Stanley. Stanley had cut his teeth making short films and documentaries, but this was his first feature film. It's a kind of unofficial adaptation of a 2000 AD comic called Shock, a one-off eight-page set in the greater Judge Dredd universe. Hardware is set in a post-apocalyptic, or possibly simply apocalyptic, near future. It opens with a desert wanderer, the nomad, or zone tripper as he's called, tracking down and excavating the remains of a droid from a remote site out in the desert, and bringing it back with him to the unidentified city that the film takes place in. Taking it to be sold for parts of the workshop of the scrap dealer Alvi, he is met by the film's protagonist, Moe and his companion Shades. Moe is an ex-soldier, now returning from an assignment to his girlfriend, Jill. Taking it to be nothing more than a maintenance drone, Mo buys the head and most of the droid from the zone tripper and gives it to, Z- to uh, Jill as a present, who uses it as a centrepiece in an elaborate abstract sculpture she is building in her apartment. However, after Mo's departure, Alvi discovers that the remaining parts of the droid are in fact part of a prototype for an advanced and extremely lethal military droid named the Mark 13, and immediately calls Mo, insisting that he come in person in case the call is being monitored. Meanwhile, left unattended, the droid begins to reassemble itself, drawing on the electrical sources in the apartments to power itself, and a deadly battle ensues between the Mark 13 and Mo, Jill, and the various security personnel of the apartment. <laughs> So 
So in terms of locating hardware within the kind of greater canon of cyberpunk, um, we're going to be talking a lot about the cybernetic angle of the film. Uh, but one of the things that I think is absolutely crucial is that second part again, the uh, all-important punk element, uh, which kind of underscores a lot of what we see in the film. Um, when I've actually tried to describe this film to people, uh, one of the things that I've actually um, brought up tends to be, well, the first thing I tend to bring up is actually the soundtrack. Um, and I often say it's like it's entirely punctual with kind of like metal and industrial and punk and post-punk things. Um, but looking, I, when I was actually researching this episode, I realized there were only actually two uh, non-original tracks in the entire soundtrack. That is Order of Death by Public Image Limited and Stigmata by Ministry, with the rest of it uh, made up by an original score. But at the same time, the what's interesting about these two pieces of music is the, fact, is the fact that they are two of the most memorable parts of the entire film. Because although they're not um, industrial music and uh, post-punk isn't actually um, as omnipresent as we both uh, thought going into it, they do set the tone so perfectly that they really embed themselves uh, into you. Um, mm. they, it really does it help. It creates the atmosphere in a perfect way. It's um, it's comparable, I think, to the use of tubular bells in The Exorcist because um, tubular bells is not even the theme tune to The Exorcist. It's just used in, as a bit of incidental music. I think what in one or two scenes, mm. but it just it sums it up somehow. It just perfectly encapsulates the mood of the film mm. and it just lingers with you afterwards in exactly the same way that um, uh, Stigmata and Order of Death stay with you. Yeah, I mean, we do actually hear kind of scraps of other stuff, but we don't, those are the only kind of full songs. Those are the non-diegetic ones. Everything else is kind of just blips of stuff on the radio, or famously Lemmy puts on, um, he puts on the Ace of Spades while he's driving the taxi through <laughs> downtown. Yeah, there are quite a few music cameos in this. Uh, the Zone Trip was played by Carl McCoy, lead singer of the of, uh, Fields of the Nephilim, and uh, St uh, Richard Stanley actually directed uh, Fields of the Nephilim's uh, music videos, and they're really really good videos we would we will be sharing those up to the podcast oh, yeah. they're well worth checking out uh the water taxi driver like we just said is none other than lemmy who was reportedly paid with a revolver and a bottle of Jack Daniels. He uh, drank the Jack Daniels and lost the revolver in the river. And then made up most of his script. <laughs> it's not much of a script to make up, though, is it? Just, do you like music? I'll put these guys on. And then, Ace of Spades. Used to be okay down here, you know that? Used to be you could walk down here any time. Go out on a Saturday night with just brass knuckles, nothing else. Maybe a piece of wood or something, piece of pie, you know what I mean? Nowadays, you need a gun all the time. Fucking bunch of shit, what these people are doing to the fucking world. Um, my, th my theory is that um, reality didn't break with the death of David Bowie. It broke with the death of Lemmy. <laughs> That's what fractured. That brought about the, the skits. Broke with the birth of Lemmy. Mm. <laughs> but then we also have the magnificent Iggy Pop as Angry Bob. Angry Bob, the man with the industrial dick. Uh, yes, it, this is a film with nuance and subtlety. <laughs> but as well as kind of the sonic element, the, the visuals are kind of something that have to be really can't be overstated they are absolutely central we have a very very distinctive aesthetic um for one thing we have like there's absolute clutter every every single scene is just full of like mysterious bits of tech lying around or there's dirt or there's kind of bodies or strange kind of mysterious things or uh, trash it, trash darkness shadows dirt but on top of that, it's because it's like it's climate apocalypse. We're looking, well, we're kind of looking at a climate apocalypse. We under, we're given to understand it's been brought about by some sort of nuclear conflagration at some point. But what it's meant is that everything is um, 
100% artificial. Um, it's, you know, it's, it was in fact, um, interestingly filmed in London in the middle of winter, although there is also a se- the opening desert scenes are, it's, it was in Morocco, I believe. I believe it was Morocco. Um, yes. But yeah, so we've got, but it's kind of in London, it was freezing, it was the middle of winter, but they just put this kind of like intense kind of red orange filter over the film at all times. So it's just this stifling and hot kind of mm. claustrophobic atmosphere. Um, and, you know, that's kind of, that's something Angry Bob again reflects when he talks about nature never knew colours like that. And it's oh, true, yeah. it's it's this kind of, it's this purely artificial thing. And it's, it's interesting that because... Um, we talk about, well, one of the kind of key things in cyberpunk a lot of the time is this idea of using kind of, again, coming back to the postmodernist reading that it's like it's recreating reality. It's um, distorting or creating this new and or reappropriated or kind of re redefined sense of reality through machinery, which we kind of get bits of, but it's not one of the key driving forces of the film. But we do still get like that is something that's something core to the thing. I mean, um, the, the thing about nature never knew colors like that, that's kind of a very, very just, I think that's a callback to the opening lines of the seminal cyberpunk novel, William Gibson's Neuromancer, uh, where he actually talks about, um, one of the opening lines is he describes the, the sky being the color of a television tuned to a dead channel. Well, pa- apparently what, cause it's one of the most beautifully ambiguous lines in, in that modern literature, but apparently William Gibson's, TV tuned to a dead channel, just displayed a blue. Uh, but <laughs> but at the same time, that uh, I thought it still works though because it's like a weird fake artificial TV blue because it tuned into a dead channel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which just yeah, which kind of that which uh, makes it weirdly more intense somehow. I don't know. It was, yeah, it's fantastic opening line. I'll decide. I had I knew some people who had like a broken plasma screen TV. Yeah, every time you switched it on, it auto generated a Rothko painting. and it was beautiful fantastic (laughs) but yeah um one of the one of the other kind of core traits of um of the film hardware is the pervasiveness of uh, media and communication technology um it's it's kind of an underscoring that idea of hyper reality this kind of version of reality that's just so extreme and in your face that it takes on this entirely other quality or seemingly at all times there is some element of kind of media communication happening it opens with the zone tripper out in the desert and he's kind of picking up radio chatter um and it's sort of almost implied that this is possibly something some part of his job or some part of his practice that he monitors static for mentions of some maybe something he's tuning into military frequencies it's not clear but mm. um but it, it goes on i mean we have the classic kind of the iggy pop radio presenter we have um these really kind of like s- surreal and intense adverts that are kind of like jarringly jaunty and, and they're the ones who actually point out that it's like christmas happening yes. in this like desert wasteland but, yeah but, to hell with to hell with uh, die hard Hardware. That's the real the blokes Christmas movie. Oh, it's intense. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, there's an ad for reindeer steaks. One hundred percent guaranteed radiation free. Yes, that that always gets me. And it's got the guy. He's like the captain in Red Dwarf. Um, he's the one making the television announcements. And I've forgotten his name, but he's he's in a lot of things. He was in the Fifth Element as well. He's like he's one of these few people whose career is literally that of science fiction actor. And he's kind of, he was in um, Aliens as well. He's in the, he, I think he's in, like, these scenes were in the kind of director's cut where you see uh, the base um, before it's been destroyed by aliens. And he's just there as one of the, like, um, dig- local dignitaries in this system. Widespread deficiency-related diseases in the inner city. Elsewhere in the news, 
Popular support has been swift and loud for the proposed emergency population control bill. The bill would mandate... But as well as that, we get kind of... Um, we get things like uh, vid communications. People are always calling each other or sending uh, messages in some way. There's these kind of closed circuit uh, security systems within the building, which uh, project video broadcasts to kind of identify who's coming to your door, which we kind of have now, but it's it's sort of done. It's more future but somehow. The, yeah, but and the uh, but uh, at the same time, because of just when this film was made, the uh, all the the screens is they're all fuzzy staticky analog looking sort of like uh, it's not they're not flat screens they're not plasma screens it's that they're, they're, it's, they're, it is analog and they kind of have they're no... cathode ray tubes yeah yeah and that's so cool and also they have things like um spying and surveillance we have like long distance surveillance using infrared uh with the character uh lincoln weinberg um spying on uh, jill in the flat um but yeah and also we have the classic motif of computer hacking and stuff mm. um and which in itself is kind of like a form of communication i mean this is going back to the kind of McLuhan understanding of like the medium is the message and sometimes we don't understand something as a medium if we don't interpret the message like he describes light bulbs as a medium in the same way television is it's mm. a, it's an interesting interesting uh thinker um but um but what's what's significant about that is that these things aren't just an aesthetic decision they also kind of they drive the narrative they pretty much are the film the film's plot wouldn't advance without these things like um Mo is called away from the apartment by Alvi, and he has to go in person because they think the military might be tuning in. Uh, Weinberg attempts to blag his way into the flat, kind of exploiting the video communication system. And Jill, yeah, Jill is actually kind of connects to... Jill kind of... There's kind of something more abstract in the awakening of the Mark 13, which I really want to go on to later. But essentially, it's coming together is kind of brought about through... Um, a wonderful kind of TV montage where she kind of channels all these kind of images of violence into something she's trying to create, um, which all goes rather wrong. Mm. Um, but as well as that, we have kind of, we have an interesting depiction of society, one that is kind of archetypally cyberpunk. And that is kind of, we get a sense of kind of post-national kind of multiculturality because um, it's unclear where the film is even set because every member of the cast is pretty much from like a different country. This is something that's become kind of a trope of um, of cyberpunk, which has kind of come into question more in recent years, which is this idea that um, uh, having heavy prominence of like Asian or South American figures is inherently cyberpunky because it's connected to... Um, it's kind of connected to globalization, but in a, sometimes in a kind of what could be quite a negative negative reading, or there's this like kind of mass immigration and things. There's, yeah, there was an interesting case with this. Um, a few years ago, that um, that film uh, Elysium came out. The mm -hmm. um, uh, had Matt Damon in it, and uh, the guy who directed District Nine uh, directed it. And uh, yeah, because the the premise of Elysium is that the wealthy have retreated to a habitat to a space station in orbit called Elysium, and the uh, well, the Earth has descended into it is purely post national. Now there are the implications. There are no longer any national borders. There's no really any government anymore. Uh, it is just a pool of labour. But what some critics pointed out was because you know, this is clearly meant to be that um, the rich people on the space station are the exploiting class. They're exploiting uh, the people on Earth and they're denying them medical technology. Uh, but it was also pointed out by some that um, what this inadvertently depicted was a closed. Uh, mono-ethnic society in the space station being utopic and a post-national 
totally blended multicultural society, multi-ethnic society, and being uh, a hellish industrial uh, yeah. landscape. And there were actually, it was a very strange thing where um, people on uh, the far right um, kind of claiming this film as things up. Yeah, this is why we want to build our own homelands. Yeah, uh, someone if, didn't think it through. Yeah, in fact, uh, yeah, in fact, Nick Land actually said on uh, he said uh, on this, his, this is later period Nick Land. Yes, contemporary contemporary Nick Land really identified with. Um, Jodie Foster, I think it's Jodie Foster's character, and that who's the security chief on the space station, who sort of is very very comfortable with the idea of killing, uh, blowing up a, a spaceship filled with uh, refugee children in order to maintain the sa- the security of the space station. He said, "Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, she's the heroine of the new reaction right oh, now." Oh dear God! Yes, yes, yes. Um, but I think kind of aside from obviously fascistic readings <laughs> of um, this uh, sort of uh, withering critique of multiculturality. One of the kind of, what I, I think one of the things that people find troubling about this uh, aspect of cyberpunk is the fact that it's kind of, it's building, um, it's building multiculturality into an aesthetic. And when we think about the kind of aestheticization of people and races and national identities, that becomes obviously uh, tricky, tricky territory because then we get into the the ideas of cultural appropriation, um, and that's you know that's something that needs to be kind of unpicked. By the same token, there is a certain, like I said earlier, there is a certain implicit criticism of what's being depicted in cyberpunk. So to a certain, in a way, you could at least respond to that with the notion that these films and these uh, books are in themselves are still offering a criticism of the uh, accessorization and the commodification of uh, ethnic identity. Um, mm. To an extent, you could, uh, I think you could, you could argue for that at the very least, which isn't to say that isn't a problem there, because mm. the, the, it, there is, there clearly is, it's just because of the circumstances of the, of the production of these pieces of literature and these pieces of film. Yeah, totally. And also, it's kind of, there's another sort of side to that as well, which is the fact that cyberpunk, and this is coming again on the kind of postmodern reading of it, that it's something that kind of cha- uh, champions aestheticization in a certain sense. This is this uh, kind of the celebration of the hollow hipness of just um, treating these things as purely um, one-dimensional elements, which is, you know, in there's a criticism woven into that, but there's also, you know, the, that's something integral to the spirit in some sense of it but it's it's yeah it's one that i think it's one that people who are still kind of working in the genre are kind of approaching now in a more direct and more uh well-considered fashion so it'll be interesting to see where that goes in recent in kind of the next couple of years kind of actually one of the interesting things about richard stanley's hardware is that um the i think he originally wanted to set it in the uk um but Miramax insisted on having American leads, uh, so kind of like having at least two American primary characters. Um, but it was kind of Richard Stanley's decision uh, to get around that by kind of uh, blurring it by just having a almost one hundred percent international cast. Uh, there is no kind of there is no kind of national ethnic majority necessarily in the. Well, there's no national majority in that film because it's like the if you think about it, the cast is what two americans an irish guy a family of chinese people uh some british guys uh iggy pop and a guy from trinidad 
Uh, again, referring to the kind of joyous nihilism of some forms of cyberpunk, I want to get, I just love this essay, but I love this essay that Land wrote in the 90s called Meltdown, and it, it's just a fantastic piece of writing, and it's, it's okay to like it, because this is before the, the awful, um, where, he, where he writes, uh, Throughout the derelicted warrens at the heart of darkness, feral youth cultures splice near rituals with, ne- with innovated weapons, dangerous drugs, and scavenged infotech. As their skins migrate to machine interfacing, they become mottled and reptilian. They kill each other for artificial body parts, explore the outer reaches of meaningless sex, tinker with their DNA, and listen to loud electrosonic mayhem untouched by human feeling. There is something about it that sounds cool. That's yeah. the thing. Um, even though it's terrible and awful, and I'm philosophically opposed to it in every way, oh, it does sound fun, though. And I do want to go to that party. <laughs> we, would, we would be making a podcast in that world. Oh yes, we, uh, as we do in this one. Both the podcast would just be us screeching in uh, binary. Yeah, and just like occasionally, just like giving post- exhortations to the government lest they send their boys in. <laughs> or some kind of post-binary quantum speech. It would still be fun. Is what <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like the other great looming presence in the film is, of course, capitalism as it is for this podcast. Capitalism, the big C. Yes. And so, and kind of what we're looking at specifically, I mentioned earlier, this idea of late capitalism, um, which that is in fact kind of, it's one that I, like, when I first heard it, it seemed kind of like quite a presumptuous thing. But I don't know who said this originally, but I've definitely heard it said that the most optimistic phrase in the English language is late capitalism. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it comes from, it comes essentially from Marxist thought, because it's the sense that um, communism was going to be the uh, ideological successor to capitalism, just as capitalism was the ideological successor to feudalism. Because it's not that it will necessarily... Um, this, like communism will rise up to destroy it, but it'll just be uh, capitalism has a set end date. It has a logical end point, and it can't continue indefinitely. It has a programmed obsolescence. Yes, and once that is enacted, uh, the only real viable option is communism. Um, but yeah, and so if we're thinking about late capitalism, the most this is the kind of darkest and most lurid depiction of what a a late-stage capitalist world would look like. It's capitalism, or a kind of capitalist humanity, ploughing on with this rigid, inflexible logic of the market to the point of death, into its own death throes, uh, as everyone is scrambling to hold on to kind of the scraps of capital that are actually left in the kind of corpse-filled ruins of the modern age. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, in fact, like, I talked about the kind of the order of death um, appearing on the soundtrack. The order of death is is a wonderfully well selected song, I think, for this because it pretty much sums up everything about the film. It's like if you want if you want consumer goods, accept that there's going to be climate apocalypse. This is what you want. This is what you get. If this you, is what you yeah. want. This is what you get, and so on. If you want, yeah, and it's just it's this rigorous kind of. It doesn't need any other lyrics. It's just like. This is the rigid logic of the market. It's like a machine. It won't stop. It doesn't care what you do or how you feel about what you're doing when you do these things. This is what will happen, and you have to live with these consequences. This nasty, pointed, like brutal, uh, cynical masterpiece that underscores <laughs> everything about about what is 
what is so central to the film hardware. Interesting aside within the canon <laughs> continuity of Weird Signal as well. The, the, uh, the Weird Signal expanded universe. Exactly. Um, in the film The Blair Witch, we talked last time about the soundtrack to, like, the uh, extended soundtrack that's supposedly in Josh's car. Which I, I spontaneously we... bought. I'm really pleased to own the CD. It's one of those enhanced CDs that they made before they figured out how to do good things with computers so yeah. I've not checked it out yet but at some point I will and I have bonus footage oh man oh, and yeah. so yeah and one of the tracks on that is Order of Death by Public Image Limited mm. and you know so if you want to make a witchcraft documentary accept that you're going to get fucked with by the ghost of a witch indeed yes okay and but yeah as well as capitalism um, one of the what I identify kind of as one of the key things in this it's inescapably so is this idea of violence Vi but like kind of not just the violence that we see on screen, but violence elevated to the level of this abstract pervasive force that is uh, wrapped up in everything that happens. It's there, it's kind of there in the air, it's like this kind of just violence inherent in these hard surfaces, these hard rigid machines. We have like, we have a door that kills someone at one point, just the door shuts on someone and you know, it's, it's all these kind of potentially lethal, burning, hot, um, spiky things it's a, it, it's a structural uh, lethality what was the the order of death, death. yes and, and also you know it's being broadcast into the homes people are you know there's a later um, there's actually a later um, Iggy Pop broadcast where he's talking about he's basically he's, he's set the alarm clock this is his morning show and he's waking people up by going it's time to kill kill <laughs> kill and he's just screeching it into like people waking up and it's like wow this, this is intense yeah the footage that um, they, that you see in the TV when Jill is flicking channels, it's, just, it's, it's very much Videodrome territory. It's yeah. just hot, just nihilistic murder, animal slaughter, people being drowned and there's, tortured. Gwah! There's also that intensely kind of um, like violent, fascistic political speech by that guy just wanting to talk, talking about seeing the faces of the people he's going to kill and they are black and they are yellow and I want to crush them. Apparently those bits were directly... Uh, influenced by uh, the band Psychic TV. Interestingly, he yes. cites that as an influence there. What's interesting about this is that the po the politics, the logic of the violence is something that is sort of lost. I mean, we're given, or it's kind of just absent. It's there in the background. We're, we're given this idea that there's a war on, but we never actually see the war or know whose side we're on necessarily. There's references to a Christmas truce. Um, and we don't even know kind of like, who is this regime? Who is this guy who appears to have kind of a Eastern European accent or something commanding, like preaching death upon you? Is this guy the enemy? Is this supposed to be your glorious leader? Mm. Um, that's left very unclear. Um, going back to this idea of late capitalism, um, Jacques Derrida, who was kind of like the spiritual lead of this show. Um, our patron, our guide, uh, yeah, our um, master. Hauntologist ascendant. Our something. captain. But basically, um, he didn't actually use the term late capitalism, which is perhaps um, more pragmatic of him, but he referred to it as neo-capitalism. And where that differed from late capitalism was, it was the sense that it was capitalism, but it no longer functioned in the way that it would have done in a classical kind of pre-World War II sense in that now capitalism was inexorably tied in with all parts of public life. It was tied in with government, it was tied in with defence, it was tied in with social programmes and society. When we think about kind of um, neo-capitalism in terms of hardware, the kind of the violence inherent in, um, in the film is it's tied to capitalism. In terms of kind of this confluence of capitalism and violence, 
Sean, you mentioned there was kind of a uh, theoretical underpinning to this, which is kind of significant in respect of kind of how this film pans out. So, yeah. Okay. So uh, we decided that this podcast isn't alienating enough yet. So I'm just going to talk extensively about some French theory for a little while. Uh, So I mentioned Deleuze and Guattari earlier, um, who were of profound influence on uh, Nick Land's uh, work in the 90s. They're a fascinating pair of French thinkers. uh, And one of the many things they were interested in... um, was the origin and the nature of uh, the state and the possibility, uh, not just the possibility, but the real existence of social assemblages which aren't state assemblages. This led them to uh, consider the meaning and the nature of what they call war machines. So Deleuze and Guattari suggest that the, uh, the war machine, it's something that comes from outside of the state. Uh, the state encounters the war machine and tries to either destroy it or requisition it. When the state, the state requisitioning the war machine is the state converting that into its military institution. Uh, we, will think, we might think that back to um, pre-modern societies, where there is no notion of a standing military uh, hierarchy. Rather, the, uh, an armed force is something that you acquire from uh, from pre-existing structures uh, like um, militias or just the plain old peasantry or mercenaries. It's something you get in. Uh, they're like, you know, the, the, guy, the, the guys who get in to sort something out. It's not something, that, um, but um, it eventually becomes a codified element uh, of the state with the rise of um, the bourgeois state uh, and uh, the liberal capitalist democratic state. So, so the important thing to remember here is that the state and the war machine have different origins. The war machine is something that kind of arrives almost. It's something that arrives from the outside. And it, this, this, what's interesting, the reason I'm talking about this, is this is literally what happens with the Mark 13. The Mark 13 is a war machine that arrives from the desert, from the outside of the city. So, but what is a war machine in the first place? What are they actually talking about when they, when they talk about a war machine? Um, the examples that Deleuze and Guattari give for war machines uh, include uh, ambulant guilds of stonemasons and bridge builders in pre-modernity, um, mercenary armies, pirate fleets, commercial organisations, certain religious organisations. So these are all uh, these are all the social assemblages that exist outside of the law in some way. There's something that uh, the state interacts with, but they are other to it. They're fundamentally other from it. It's constituted differently. Uh, They they give this analogy. They say that um, it's kind of like this. The state is a game of chess, but the war machine is a game of go. In chess, uh, the pieces all have a predetermined function. Uh, They can only move and relate to one another in predetermined, fixed ways. A knight can only ever be a knight, and a rook can can only ever be a rook. A pawn can, of course, become a queen, but even then, that's within a rigidly codified, transformative matrix, if if you will. But in Go, the pieces in in a game of Go are all anonymous in a certain sense. They don't have fixed identities in the same way uh, that a pawn and the king does in chess. Uh, rather, the pieces in Go, they are what they do. They either they are either encircling, blocking, pursuing, or capturing. But that uh, those descriptions are born solely and purely out of what they're doing right now. A piece which is encircling can become a piece which is capturing, or a piece that is fleeing, or a piece that is pursuing. 
The state has a certain sedentary character to it, which is why the state is off, why the city, the polis, is the archetypal state. But the war machine is something ambulant and nomadic. It isn't something that settles, it, it moves around, it pursues its own interests. Uh, the war machine is above all else functional. It does what it needs to do. It relates as it has to relate at that point. It isn't fixed. It's not centralised. Um, so, which, which is why Deleuze and Guattari are interested in the war machine as a, liber as a possible emancipatory force, as an emancipatory assemblage, precisely because it is a functional, decentralised, ambulant, nomadic thing that changes what it is as and when it needs to change it. They also devote some attention to the idea that science is manifested differently in the war machine to how it's manifested in, in the state. For the Guild of Stonemasons, uh, scientific practice is directed towards um, solving specific problems, not formulating general theories. Uh, medieval stonemasons didn't need a theor theoretically coherent set of laws about motion and weight to build cathedrals. They didn't need models or templates. Rather, they were uh, they had these inherited principles of construction that had been tested by their usefulness and by their ability to accomplish what is necessary. So there's something inherently experimental about uh, nomadic science, about science as, as manifested in the war machine, as opposed to the royal science of the state. Um, there's a willingness to try new things uh, and to violate conventions and to chase solutions down really weird corridors uh, to accomplish what needs to happen. So there's some, there's a kind of, um, there's an obvious link between the military institution and experimental science in that way, in that neither have really have regard for rules in themselves, but only for as much as rules are useful. So as such, there's a certain willingness to disregard them if they prove to be um, to be inhibiting, to be contradictory to what is necessary. Um, which gives birth to sort of like the image, well, both the practical reality and also the, ge the generic image of the black ops site, um, like the or the plausibly deniable research institution, uh, the distant research outpost with re really weird, mysterious lines of funding. This is something that we're really familiar with in science fiction, in conspiracy fiction, in, and in horror fiction. The ex the experimental military institute, and indeed, kind of that's the origin of the Mark Thirteen. It's something that's presumably left over from an earlier experiment where there were these. Problems that were held, you know, all the information on this has been completely hushed up and it's all on these incredibly classified documents. Um, but it's Alvi who kind of unlock, well, it's the nomad who finds this thing where he really shouldn't have found it. He's found it through kind of subterfuge and it's Alvi. Or possibly uh, just chance. It's not, well, that's something yeah. that I want to get to in a little bit. Um, yeah, but then it's Alvi who kind of like decodes all this information and finds out all this intense uh, stuff. This is a military file. Do not proceed without correct security clearance. Please select correct combat system required. Yeah, the, um, the point is that the war machine is kind of a site where... Um, where these different functions kind of collide with one another. Um, this is a passage, I'm sorry, I know I'm reading out lots of books from other people, um, but this is a passage from Deleuze and Guattari's essay, uh, Treatise on Nomadology, from um, their book, A Thousand Plateaus, where they say this, uh, but the war machine's form of exteriority, that is, as opposed to the interiority of the state, uh, is such that it exists only in its own metamorphoses. It exists in an industrial innovation, as well as in a technological invention, in a 
commercial circuit, as well as in the religious creation. It all flows in currents that are only secondarily allow themselves to be appropriated by the state. It is in terms not of independence, but of coexistence and competition in a perpetual field of interaction that we must conceive of exteriority and interiority, war machines of metamorphosis and state apparatuses of identity, bands and kingdoms, mega-machines and empires. The same field circumscribes its interiority in states, but describes its exteriority in what escapes states or stands against states. And actually, just as an aside, you might have noticed just the structure of the, the language in Deleuze and Guattari, very, very similar to how Nick Land writes later on, because there was an enormous influence uh, on these thinkers on uh, how he thought in the 90s, and this sort of like inhabits the uh, the whole corpus of the CCRU. Mm. But um, anyway, let's, let's actually bring it back to the film a little bit. Let's talk yeah. about the Mark 13. So obviously the Mark 13 is, in lots of senses of the word, it's a war machine. Uh, there's the literal sense that it is a machine designed for war, um, uh, for combat and killing and exterminating. It's remorseless, it's pitiless, it's entirely given over to killing. Uh, there's that wonderful line from the trailer. A creature that combines the technology of a computer, the deceit of a human, and the killer instinct of a machine. But in the Deleuze Guattarian sense, to use an unnecessarily convoluted word. It's an interesting use of the ablative. <laughs> in the Deleuze Guattarian sense, and one notices there's, there's, there's lots of instances of parallel between their concept of the war machine and the Mark 13. The Mark 13 is brought into the city, the into the polis, uh, from a literal outside, uh, from a literal desert outside, and it's brought in by a nomad, by the zone tripper. And for Deleuze and Guattari, um, there's a certain, there's a relationship between the notion of the schizophrenic and the nomad. Uh, it's worth writing. It's worth mentioning rather that they were, a lot of this comes from the seventies, where there was a certain there was, it was academically fashionable to romanticise mental illness as a site of resistance to capitalism. Mm. Yeah. Foucault was a particularly bad one of that. Of, uh, Foucault, R.D. Lang, uh, and uh, well, Wilhelm Reich, obviously, uh, but it was a, at an earlier date. And Deleuze, Patch Adam, uh, <laughs> and uh, Deleuze and Guattari. That, that's that's kind of their whole shtick. Um, but anyway, the, but the uh, the schizophrenic is the nomad par excellence for them, uh, what's actually par excellence, mm. par excellence, uh, in that the schizophrenic is a kind of a stationary nomad, uh, in that the schizophrenic's nomadic journey is an interior journey through their own, uh, to use their language, through, through its own, his own, her own fields of intensity, interior fields of intensities. Um, the schizophrenic crosses skitses or trips the zones, if you will. Mm. Ah. Uh, the war machine exists in the desert of the exterior, which lies outside the state's control. Which isn't to say, obviously, that there isn't contact between the state and the war machine, but rather that the contact is always fraught because these are fundamentally different social assemblages acting functioning in fundamentally different ways. Uh, the state seeks to discipline and co-opt the war machine, uh, while the war machine resists the state and even wages war against the state. But that doesn't necessarily have to be like the grand war between um, uh, uh, between, the, uh, between the Golden Horde and uh, the Catholic powers of Europe or, or anything like that, or with dynastic China. Um, it, they, Deleuze and Grattari observe just the simple truth of ever-present conflicts between the military institutions and the government that there's always a certain suspicion and tension there because the military does, it always does its own thing and has its own 
rules, its own functions mm. going on, which are often antithetical to, the, to state functions, or they are permitted for as much as the state can channel them usefully. Mm. Mm. But the plot, the plot, if anything, kind of just gets weirder here. Uh, <laughs> the Mark Thirteen, because the Mark Thirteen is a product of, the, of this intersection between state power, military interests, experimental science, and private capital of all of state and war machinic uh, flows crossing into and through one another and blending together. Because we're told explicitly that the Mark 13 is the work of a private corporation. There's a private corporation with a military contact receiving funding from the state. So there is this, in the, in the line of funding, there's a line of attempted control coming in from the state as it tries to maintain, uh, maintain its hold on the military institution, even as the military institution embraces experimental science in pursuit of its own uh, functional goals. I've thought about this too much. Yeah, you you can't see this, but there are a series of kind of like stapled pieces of paper on the wall with red pieces of string connecting them. We should be, uh, if anything, we should be filming this. I am just waving my hands around like uh, like Charlie from Always Sunny at this point. (laughs) But this in turn begs the further question of how did the Mark 13 end up how it is where we find it, where where it's found at the beginning of the film. It's smashed up, It's, it's ripped apart, it's lying just uh, barely covered by the sand in what looks like a, a ruined installation of some kind. But how did that happen? What happened here? Um, I think, this is my theory, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, my theory is that the Mark 13, this is camouflage, the Mark 13 not only destroyed the scientists that created it and tore apart the, uh, the facility it was built in, it then directs its violence inwards in a gesture of absolute camouflage in order for it to be transported into the state, into the heart of the state, into the polis, so it can then reconstitute itself and carry on doing what it's directed to do. Sean has taken off his shirt at this point. (laughs) (sighs) I I don't use brain force. (laughs) You done? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's best that I sit. I'm uh, gonna sit quietly for a little okay. bit. Okay, uh, Lucy, you, you take over the podcast. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of like in terms of where um, where hardware as a film came historically. Um, that we're looking at a very very interesting kind of point because again, this is going back to this idea that we're existing at the end of history, which we are absolutely not. We're just existing at a kind of very very profound redefinition of our own history, um, and. Um, but yeah, this film kind of, it came out in the year 1990, and this was um, the first year of the Gulf War. And that was kind of one of the first um, wars where we saw what we're kind of, what we were a progression to what we've got now, which is a very much a kind of, not totally automated nature of war, but a kind of, a very much mechanized type of war, an extremely distanced and almost kind of abstracted way we had like missiles being guided by satellites um being kind of you know commands given to kill by a uh, a general in a room in arizona somewhere we had um we had long-range communications we had like entire you know it was it was this very very kind of strange abstracted thing that and the people coming back from it weren't sure they'd been in a war at all or what the what the war even felt like it's, yeah. it's kind of obscure and yeah Baudrillard wrote three essays actually which I'll, be, I'll, I'll probably have not read them but um uh he wrote three essays 
during this period called uh, there is the, the Gulf War will not happen. The Gulf War is not happening. The Gulf War did not happen. Mm. Um, precisely on grounds that it was an, it was such a an overt construction in media, mm. in image manipulation. That yeah. he's about to, obviously he's not he's not insane. He's not saying there isn't a, a conflict going on. But he's saying that the image the the Gulf War as it is in our minds is is a totally fictitious. Thing, yeah, and this is because this is something that was re- became really, really um, obvious and, uh, during this period. Was the, was the um, you could call it the military potential simply of the image. Um, yeah. There was um, the destruction, the, like the famous destruction of the um, uh, retreating Iraqi forces uh, fleeing uh, from Iran, which oh were like famously just absolutely the Americans just absolutely annihilated them. Mm. And the footage, and it's been suggested that the images, the pictures that were taken of just the ruins left from this, where you could see where you could see just the horrible twisted bodies um of the of the soldiers played a really major role in the Gulf War coming to its conclusion when it did, because when people saw this, it's like, holy shit, this is monstrous. Yeah, because up until the point it had been like it had been a heavily the entire kind of like visual process of the war, what was fed back to the people at home was so intensely, because because it was a war fought at such distance, it was possible to completely filter it through this clean, neat, black and white thing. And then when the kind of gruesome reality of it came home, then it was, you know, it took on this whole other meaning. But then we've kind of seen that, um, seen that 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 this status of conflict kind of coming back i mean we have very good independent reporting which has meant that um meant that kind of you know a lot more stuff on the ground as it's actually happening you know largely through the internet has been reported more truthfully but we still have you know the images as strong as ever we think about um we think about the uh In the second Gulf War, we had the toppling of the statue of Saddam Hussein, and that was originally a bunch of American soldiers had done that and put a US flag over his face. And I think I'm remembering this correctly. And like, but basically, yeah, uh, a a general who was kind of more media savvy than his troops, um, like saw a kind of potential for danger in this, and he instructed um, the flag to be taken down. An Iraqi, an Iraqi flag. Um, being put over the head of Saddam Hussein. So it's like, no, this isn't an American takeover. This isn't an invasion. This is a liberation of a resurgent, pure, national Iraqi uh, character. Um, But, yeah, and then we've just seen... um, And we saw that kind of play out over the century. I mean, we look... I think it was like kind of in the years following that, we had the Waco Massacre, or the Waco Massacre. Uh, That was another thing where it was was on American soil, but a similar process happened where uh, the um, people... You know, it was a fuck-up. It was a real disaster. And it was kind of one that was brought about by the cult of um, David Koresh. Uh, The Branch Branch Davidians, Yeah, that's the one. And um, But, the you know, the ATF were, like, very brutal in their methods and stuff. and, And, you know, and they... They went in way too, you know, full force. Um, there was some very dubious what, planning aspects. Yeah, what happened though is the ATF had previously had a ma- had another major fuck up where they had um, the Ruby Ridge uh, incident um, okay. by saying, "Okay, this is the one we get right," and it was also in scores yeah, of people. Yeah, they were dying. like super extreme. But the thing, the, the thing that's pointed uh, significant about that is that that was kind of a controlled image. The, it, they tried to set, filter that through the press the, to cover themselves. The press arrived before the troops. Yeah, yeah. essentially. Um, and so, but, you know, it failed in, the, in that sense, in that sense, because, you know, the kind of reality, the brutal reality, which was like brutality on both sides kind of came out, but 
Um, but it's kind of, you could see it coming into force. And I think kind of since 9-11 as well, it's become even more of a force. Just as an aside, if you want to know a bit more about this, um, Yeah, check there's out... two very good um, episodes of Last Podcast on the left. Yeah, uh, they're interesting, but they have actually... Uh, though... They've changed their views, actually. They've changed their views, because uh, they changed their views in accordance with the evidence, as in the later yeah. date, because they, uh, god damn, we love those guys. I'll be posting both of these on the Twitter rundown. Oh. Um, but in terms of um, where this comes in, where this relates to hardware, uh, even though this was kind of the contemporary scene, what we that was what we saw kind of emerging after hardware um what we get into hardware itself was kind of feeding into an older logic um of the um that was dating back really to the earliest days of the cold war um this merging of as you say as you mentioned with the kind of delusion guitarist state uh, section the merging of state and military um, and this is kind of feeds into Derrida, uh, what Derrida described as, because Derrida famously, he didn't use the term late capitalism. He was slightly more pragmatic than that, I think. But he referred to neo-capitalism, which is capitalism that existed separately from um, this traditional understanding we'd previously had of it. Um, and now it was like capitalism, it still existed, but it was in a more kind of hyper, it was in a more extreme form, but it was crucially merged with other institutions of state and society. Um Two things that came out of the end of the um, World War II and the early days of the Cold War was one, mutually assured destruction. So kind of warfare that could only happen, or that could like could could never not happen in under certain circumstances. It would follow just a chain reaction. And that's kind of like a sort of brutal logic um, that we see present in the Mark 13. It does these things because it's it's in its nature to do this. And the, yeah, because no, the Mark 13 is it's not just a killing machine. It's it's a, it's a terror machine. Yeah, it is. It, it looks terrifying, and it is. And you can tell, like the implication is it's designed in such a way that it doesn't just kill. It kills in a horrible way. And an unnecessarily gruesome and cruel way, yeah. precisely as uh, a precise, and that's part of the strategy. That's part of the logic. That's part mm. of the calculation. That's kind of where, like, even though, like, the uh, the trailer famously used a slightly ham-fisted description, where it's it's something like the mind of a killer, the ruthlessness of machine, and the logic of a computer. And so you think, like, okay, but computers are machines. What what is happening here? But the crucial thing about that is this idea that it's not just a um, a killing machine. It's a weirdly humanized killing machine. We've invested it with a very kind of human-type sadism. Um, or not sadism, well, no, but just I like... Think, a... I think that's what makes it more disturbing. It's not sadistic. It's not doing it out of for pleasure. It's doing it out... It's a function. But it's we've in... kind of... It's violent following a more human model, which has its origins in a more kind of subjective and more impassioned sense of killing. But it's 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 kind of... It's feeding on from that in the same way that, you know, we had like the racist AI unit. Mm. That was... It's humans tainting their progeny. Interestingly, in... Um, uh... But it wasn't. They didn't film this because they ran out of um, time and budget. But originally, one of the secondary characters was going to have a very, very gruesome death, where the where he um, the Mark Thirteen he's paralysed uh, by a stray bullet, and the Mark Thirteen grabs him, drags him away, and just starts sawing 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 him up slowly to try and get Jill to try and rescue him so it can kill her, so mm. it can kill her. But which this doesn't happen. But it, it, there are a few shots of the Mark 13 just like raking its sword oh, over his body. Just kind of like, just, uh, well, again, it's it's following an algorithm. A, a little sub-pathway kicked in about yeah. sort of like execute um, dead corpse mutilation function. And, yeah, and there's kind of like, there's, there's very interesting um, art, like kind of journalism emerging now about this kind of, mystical essential like mystical kind of 
ascending of this like you know uh, elevation of the idea of the algorithm as this um divine uh, golden rule type principle even though no it is built on very shaky foundations because it's only as pure as the data you feed into it but uh, well the whole thing well that's the thing with um, all of computer technologies it's built on shaky foundations and don't quite understands yeah <laughs> uh, this is um uh elizabeth sandifer in her essay near reaction of basilisk precisely talks about the problems of any of the of the evolutionary image we have of computer technology precisely because it's no it's not a linear progression of advancement of complexity it's botched solutions top botched solutions just about hanging together which is why which is why things break all of the time mm. that, that's that's the simple truth of it it's why there are certain there are problems in computing that will never be solved and it's kind of like this kind of coming back again to uh, the Derrida model, the idea of where this ties in with capitalism. Um, Derrida's idea of um, neo-capitalism, it specifically um, came out of another element of the kind of post-Second World War, early Cold War thinking, which was this idea of the military-industrial complex. This is something that, again, you kind of reflected on with Deleuze and Qatari. It originated as a term in uh, President uh, Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address as president, where he warns about, like, eerily presciently warns about uh, various things that are going to go horribly wrong when we allow this kind of inflated permanent status of military preparation to become an integral part of all our lives and it's going to it's going to become this self-sustaining force that has to kind of create violence to justify its existence and when we think about kind of the cap the kind of the the idea that like violence as it's depicted in hardware it is not a kind of it's not something separate from capitalism it's not something that capitalism is trying to find a solution to it is a function of capitalism and it's made manifest through the mark 13 and so when we get you know one of the closing lines of the film is in fact when um when this we managed to finally defeat the prototype and then we, the next thing is Iggy Pop announcing on the radio next morning that the military have approved the production of like several thousand units or something mm. of um of this robot so get your unemployed asses down to the production line and get yourselves a job and um yeah and that's like kind of holy shit it's just it's it's become kind of it's this extreme thing that's just become so banal um that that's the that's the horror that we see if the that is the true terror of the Mark 13. I've been basing my work more on organic forms, but sometimes by the time I've finished, it's hard to tell. It's like I'm fighting with a medal, and so far the medal's winning. It's very powerful. We've been talking a lot about kind of um, science fiction, but when we're talking about Richard Stanley, one of the things that you which you kind of have to acknowledge is sort of the influence of the occult. This is something that, as you know, is very distinctly kind of there on an aesthetic level. It's got this kind of psychedelic witchiness about it. Well, but, uh, well Stanley himself is an occultist. Yeah, like, uh, he was just, like... We should yeah. just like state the he is an occultist. He's a practicing occultist. Yeah, he was raised in South Africa by like a kind of... I think his mom, he said his mom was like a kind of... She was an anthropologist. Anthropologist, yeah. and so had this intense interest in uh, ritual and occult and folkloric practices. In witchcraft, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, essentially. And so this comes up very prominently in his films, in like Dust Devil was the one that immediately followed this, which we're going to definitely cover at some point. Um, but also, even though it wasn't made, there's a fantastic documentary about what... It's called Lost Souls, and the first part of it covers kind of Richard Stanley's original vision for his Island of Dr. Moreau. And that's something that has this 
a blending of occultism, well, kind of like science fiction with a kind of occultist uh, aesthetic and an occultist kind of motivation behind it. Because he's like, he's seeing like, Dr. Moreau ascending to this kind of um, uh, prophet wizard type status in the same way that kind of Zone Tripper does in some sense. Well, but, becoming a demiurge figure. Yeah, totally. Um, but I want to kind of like unpack the kind of connection between cyberpunk and occultism because we think about them as kind of magic is one thing and science is another. These are distinct categories. And it could, on those grounds, you could argue that hardware is a, it's more, it's a magic film. It's an occult film um, in the guise of a sci-fi film in the same way Star Wars is like a Western or a kind of action adventure in the guise of a sci-fi film because it kind of comes down to the kind of the Ray Bradbury definition of science fiction, that science fiction has to necessarily be motivated by the science. And if the science wasn't there, then the plot wouldn't exist in the same way. But I think in the case of hardware, this is something that doesn't work in the same way because kind of cyberpunk and occultism have so much of a kind of mutual existence. In, um, uh, what's it called? In um, Count Zero, the sequel to Neuromancer, this uh, cyberspace has become inhabited by these broken bits of software, which are um, vo- which are described as voodoo lowers, uh, voodoo and lowers rather. Mm. And we see this kind of like... Um, I mean, yeah, the crossovers are in things like, um, well, to kind of, to understand it, like, it's necessary to kind of unpack what is meant by a cult. A cult refers to, it's not necessarily strictly magic, it refers to lost or secret wisdom. It, means, it literally means hidden, it's from the same source as a... Oculus. ...and eclipse. Yes, uh, so to obscure something from the eye. Um, this, uh, the term kind of occult emerged out of kind of pre-enlightenment science, or but was kind of formalised in the Renaissance and then the um, and the Enlightenment, this sense that kind of science used to work differently. It was built on a kind of Aristotelian inherited sense of uh, deductive logic. It's the sense that science wasn't something new. It wasn't something being discovered. Science was something old. It was something from an ancient source, and it was something that had been handed down to us. It's by... being re- rediscovered. Yeah, it's being yeah. rediscovered uh, and justified according to ancient lines. And in some cases... Uh, some kind of more occultist ideas. I identified it as like kind of originating from the gods. I think it's, is it Plato who talks about kind of the gods um, giving us scientific ideas, but there are also kind of particular angels in. Um, well, no. Uh, well, okay, let's not get into that. Yeah, but there's a whole. Well, no, like, um, traditions that come after Plato blend with Gnostic ideas about. Um, uh, supernatural beings being the sources of knowledge. Uh, Plato, but ha- uh, Plato does believe that that discovering knowledge is a matter of recognizing, literally rethinking yeah. things that we learnt at a prior stages of our existence yeah. because we because we have uh, the immortal soul has always existed. But the kind of function on a functional level, what it's doing through occultism is essentially using very specialized, sometimes secretive or very sophisticated. Um, knowledge to approach very fundamental existential questions of the soul or the nature of reality. And essentially, there's a kind of functional parallel that we find in cyberpunk through uh, trying to ask these existential questions about nature and reality and the soul and perception and through the, computers. And the figure of the, of the hacker has, has, an obvious, uh, has an obvious kind of descent from the figure of the witch. Yeah, absolutely. And it's this idea of like, one, it's kind of like people beholden to occult knowledge or kind of knowledge that is out of the hands of the common people, or it's very, you know, it's very specialised or hidden or has to be 
access through underhanded means. It has to be, you know, a, a, a kind of hacking into the mainframe. It's like the equivalent of a deal with the devil for uh, hidden secret knowledge of the universe, which was, um, which is not, which was never meant for the scope of humanity. And there's also something, um, just something functional about it. Yeah. Yeah. So like low magic and goetic magic is about doing something. It's about accomplishing something. It's about doing something. Yes. And also, it does. It does kind of have that kind of functional operation of kind of um, the kind of radical countercultural idea. The hacker is this figure outside of society. Again, um, like, again, like the witch. Yeah, like the witch or like the sorcerer. And this is kind of this is almost kind of drawing on a pulp tradition. We have things like um, well, Lovecraft is a kind of classic thing, but also Robert E. Howard, I think, is one of the very distinctive uh, people in this. He talks about kind of. There were ages in the Conan universe, even more ancient than the Conan universe, where it's like people rediscovering these fragments of the pre-Egyptian uh, religions and deriving power from them. And these were dangerous countercultural figures who presented a challenge, or at least kind of uh, were kind of spitting in the face of the authority of the powers that be. A force from the outside. Yeah, yeah. and that is the, you know, that is in our zone tripper. That is exactly what he's representing. You find it. Glass flats. June C. I go all over. I give you thirty. And Carl McCoy himself is is an occultist of. Um, I think I. I'm not. Sure, I don't he, think he identifies any particular tradition. But he he's, doesn't like to elaborate. He no, he doesn't. He leaves it. No, he leaves it to it. But he clearly. But there's clearly some kind of uh, thelemic. Uh, that is um, an Alistair Crowley uh, influence on his worldview and on his music. Definitely, and probably has a lot in common with Richard Stanley in that mm. respect. I don't think they just made videos together. <laughs> or, you know, they did, but what were they doing at the same time through the videos? Well, so, well the fields of the Nephilim say that they consider their concerts to be workings, to be magical uh, rituals. Mm. Yeah. Um, but in terms of kind of other, other ideas, kind of occult things that we see through the film, I mean, the presentation of technology is, um, is something very occulted, you know, it, or occult-like. Occult it is... Um, it's technology that's kind of scraps of a perhaps more advanced or more prosperous time that are all kind of cannibalized and they're junk or but they're functioning. But kind of um, their actual functioning or the more sophisticated elements of their coding are ones that are lost. And so we're just dealing with what we're able to comprehend and bash bits together to make things work when we when we don't. Um, but also there's a very kind of, as you mentioned, kind of Gnosticism. There is a very kind of Gnostic strain of Gnostic thought running through uh, hardware. Um, we actually get this through the idea of kind of cyborgization, which is the combination and interaction of um, but, uh, cybernetic parts to a biological system being synthesized and made part of their functioning. And we see that through Mo actually has a robot hand. Um, but he kind of when he's injected with this neurotoxin, which brings on this incredible... Everyone's tripping in that film, basically. Mm. Every, he gets injected with a hallucinogenic neurotoxin. Shades has taken acid in the earlier part of the film. Yeah, yeah Shades... I think Shades meant to be... Um, he's activated the Kundalini. Yeah. That's what's meant to be happening to him. And her. he's, like, peaking as this, you know, as um, as the hallucination sequence is happening to uh, to Mo because he's, he's passed out. But he fa he dies. He fails, essentially. But he passes on the necessary information through machines because he kind of, his um, utterances just before he dies about the flaw in the Mark 13, which is what Jill eventually manages to use to defeat it, are things that um, are kind of recorded onto 
um, onto the machine's hardware and that she's able to hack into later. I think there's, it's unclear, or it's one of those things that's like something occult feeling has happened there. Yeah, because the implication, and this is something that actually comes up again with um, with the Mark 13 uh, itself. When the Mark, because th- um, when Mo is dying, there are these flashes. Yeah. Of, uh, this, like, there's, there's a, an extended hallucination of the Mandelbrot set. Which is kind of like a, a Hindu mandala. The kind of seat of the gods, or the vision of kind of the universe, mm. and uh, but there's also like uh, flashes of of a kind of a tunnel of light, and when they do kill the Mark Thirteen, mm. they do so with uh, my turning. It's a little bit rubbish. They spray uh, they spray it with water from the shower head because yeah. it, uh, the problem with it is uh, it uh, isn't insulated properly, so it's humidity. From moisture. It's from the water moisture. It's like the Wicked Witch of the West. But when it di- but when it dies, we see because there's these wonderful sequences throughout the film of us seeing what the Mark 13 sees through its uh, in droid vision mm. and when it dies it looks up at the at it just because it looks up and the same tunnel of light is the last thing it sees uh, in a flash as it dies as, it, mm. as it's destroyed and uh, Stanley himself has like in, in, in an interview he gave with uh, the Quietus he says that he considers the Mark 13 to be in a kind of a strange spiritual quest of its own yeah it's not understanding what's going on because it's programmed to follow with its um heat vision to follow spots of light I mean it's, um, which is yeah. precisely what it's doing and, he, uh, and it is pursuing light but, pursu- but in, in a way that is destructive in the way it itself doesn't realise because it yeah. is following its own programming and it is something I think it's just when we talk about occultism in the film it's just so dense all the imagery it's just com- completely compacted because it all links but it all kind of is there intersecting beautifully with the actual progression of the plot so it's it's just this everything is cut every element that we see is incorporated into this kind of occulted ritualistic vision like the fact that it's seeing through it's seeing through heat vision it's almost like it's having some sort of vision quest of its own it's like operating on a different visual mm. level um but is able to be hidden from um from view well jill is able to hide from view by hiding in the freezer at one point but um <laughs> Also, it's kind of an interesting aside that uh, we've talked about uh, Philip K. Dick briefly. He um, he was also, you know, reg- he's one of the... He, he's he's foundational in the establishment of cyberpunk because he, of course, wrote uh, To Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which is... Um, which is, you know, like, was made into the film Blade Runner and is the archetypal cyberpunk film. Mm. But with but um, Dick was also uh, he was also a Gnostic. He was yeah. a, he was a Gnostic. He was a, he was a Gnostic Christian, and with his um, with, with his uh, the Valis trilogy, which is um, consists of Valis, the Divine Invasion, and a transmigration of Timothy Archer. Yeah, were him exploring in um, in very in, like, were him exploring inside through science fiction Gnostic ideas about. Um, the fallenness of reality mm. and indeed the illusionary nature of the world in which we live and how the divine, the true divinity which stands behind the creator of yeah. this illusion is invading us and tr- um, and is the is the true light which is revi- which uh Gnostics believe was revealed by Christ in his esoteric teachings and that by following this true light we will in fact transcend out of the illusionary reality in which we are trapped yeah and in fact like uh what what he describes in Valis is kind of closely based on i think it's like it's based on the experience of Jakob Burma who was kind of like a he's described as a literate but he kind of like was semi-literate, semi-literate, but non-intellectual. He was a goldsmith. Uh, he was living in Germany during the Thirty Years' War, and he had this um, experience where he he had a flash of vision directly inspired by an angel, and he could suddenly apparently speak Greek and re- went on to write these incredibly 
weird, occulty, neo-Aristotelian treatises called the Aurora. Um, and yeah, that's something that's something I'm going to link out to. But that is um, that is what. Well, that's, that's essentially, what, it's an allegory, it's a version of that, that the, well, more the than character, that, yeah, well, that more, is what Dick had. Yeah, that's what happened to Philip K. Dick. He was, um, uh, he had a moment, he had uh, an encounter, he said it was like a, a laser beam of pink light firing out of the sky yeah. into him. And, and suddenly he found himself uh, having these visions of himself living as a, uh, as a, uh, a Christian in the first century, hiding from the Romans, yeah. and he said, and th- th- this led him led him to conclude that um, time that we are, that time has not actually progressed since the first century, and our all history since this time, since this moment, is uh, an illusion. He called the Black Iron Prison, and there, and he believed there was a god satellite called Ballas, which was vast beam- active living intelligence system. which was beaming gnosis beaming divine revelation into us trying to wake us up um oh this is this is a dense episode isn't it yeah he also wrote a novel called the three stigmata of palmer eldritch which is again kind of which is kind of precursor to matrix type thing about kind of these endlessly repeating realities check and mate hey chief i do that i didn't even see that coming Sicilian manoeuvre. That's how you beat computers when you play them. Machine don't understand sacrifice, neither do morons. Briefly, we've got to reflect on kind of what the um, the Mark Thirteen could represent in this kind of intense, kind of occult uh, system. Because in some senses, it's like a, it's like, is it a demon? Is it kind of a, like a sort of gnostic demiurge or something? It's uh, interestingly, as well as kind of like, um, yeah, I mean, it, or is it kind of like a, an elemental force? Um, these are all kind of something something inherent to that. And the Mark 13 is, in fact, you know, a lot is made of this. It's based on a verse from the Bible, which it, is Mark cha- 13. Yeah, chapter, uh, Mark chapter 13. Which I'm Sean not, is now going to read. Uh, I'm not going to read it in its entirety. I'm going, to, I'm going to display a small mercy. But I will read a couple of verses um, where Jesus says, uh, But woe to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh shall be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. No flesh shall be spared. No flesh shall be spared. The abyss bat, um, bat is the... Um, that's Mark chapter thirteen, which and that's a passage that's called the, the Little Apocalypse, where nice. um, uh, it, it, Jesus is um, often interpreted as he's referring to the death of the old world and the and and the birth of the new world, which is through him and his resurrection. But, but what kind of new world are we looking at here? Yeah, let's uh, let's not go into. Yeah. Um, but in terms of kind of like what is what is the Mark thirteen? It's kind of there's a there's an interesting thing that I'd actually forgotten. But as well as having that kind of biblical that biblical reference, there's also um, the fact that the unit uh, the the model is in fact bioelectric, artificially intelligent, auto independent life form. Baal, which is the name yes. of a classical, uh, of the name of a like Canaan- a Hebrew demon. No, no, a Canaanite deity. Um, which was later kind of identified as a demon in Milton's Paradise Lost. Mm. Um, but in terms of thinking about what the Mark 13 represents, I think it's also crucial to think about who is Jill, because Jill is a character we've not really talked about a great deal in the in the film, but I think she's someone who is incredibly significant in a lot of what we've been talking about. Um, Going back to kind of like um, 
the earlier part we were talking about how uh, it's based on a comic in 2001, uh, 2000 AD. Um, she's actually presented as this bit, a bit of an airhead. I mean, it's kind of, and that's something that, well, there's some element of that that's directly carried over in that, like, it's this guy uh, bringing in advanced technology so his girlfriend can make a sculpture out of it. But Richard Stanley, being the kind of visionary and the artist himself, saw something much nobler in this pursuit because she's, you know, through using it in the sculpture, she's not just kind of doing something purely aesthetic. She is channeling an intense kind of thought and attempt... Basically... Um, what we see is, like, she's inspired to kind of finish this piece by the incredibly brutal video montage with the stigmata in the background that features the Guar video for Penguin Attack, I believe. <laughs> uh, and also just, like, you know, nasty, fucked-up imagery. Nasty Videodrome stuff, Videodrome yeah. style, like, Videodrome next-level shit. And so she's, like, taking in all of this violence around her, but then turning it into a kind of act of creation, which is kind of like a... Um, it's a creative act, and she's seen as this kind of positive force, even though it's an expression of this violence around her. She's trying to make something different out of it, which is kind of, which I think uh, Stanley was trying to present as this noble pursuit. That is something I think is very significant, which I want to go into in a moment. But in terms of the fact that she's like the main female character in the thing is very important, because uh, one of the things that has been a criticism of the early cyberpunk, and indeed was kind of a reality to it, was the fact that it was a bit of a boys club. It was seen as kind of... People talked about it as kind of being inherently misogynistic in some cases. Actually, one quote that I wanted to read was, um, it was from a kind of another kind of counter uh, manifesto to Bruce Sterling's uh, one uh, by a writer called Esteban Cicerone Rone Jr. Um, talking about kind of the present generation of cyberpunk writers. He says, they are canny men, almost all of them men. Why would a woman care about a technological society she had no role in creating? Oh, yeah. And, you know, this is going back, right back to the first episode when we were talking about another Jill, Jill Greeley. Mm -hmm. um, both of them were, well, obviously, you know, as I mentioned in that first episode, the, the history of computing is, to a huge extent, a female one. We have, you know, um, the first programmer was goddamn Ada Lovelace. Mm. And, um, you know, that does, you know, read, I'll link to it. This needs, this needs more information out there. But basically, she's kind of a similar figure in that she's, not just um, technologically literate, as we see later in the film with um, with Jill in hardware, but um, she's also kind of a visionary, and she can see things that others can't, uh, and is able to use that. And also because she's kind of she's curious, and she's her visionariness is ultimately something she's punished for because um, through trying to do something positive, she is awakening something extremely negative. Um, which is why I was talking about this idea of when she makes the sculpture, it's not just that she's inspired to do it. Um, I think there's something in this as a symbolic act by bringing all the force of violence into this sculpture by placing the Mark 13 there. She's kind of, she's doing an expression of, of creation, but in doing so, she's creating a destruction because she's channeling all she's placing it in proximity to electronic sources so it's able to charge itself but also she's giving all the kind of parts around i think because basically it's made up of some original parts of the mark 13 but a lot of it is repurposed cannibalized stuff from her studio um which then kind of makes makes it you know it forms itself into this robot and so you know that is her being punished for her thing but it's not just basically it's not just a symbolic act I think it is kind of a literal channeling of violence as a magical force into a magical creation. And this is where we get to some next level shit, because basically 
um, if we're thinking about it from a Thelemic perspective, what what is she? Basically, a woman with flaming red hair and a, a, will, a knowledge of um, a knowledge and a vision and an understanding of arcane arts, bringing a demon of destruction into the universe. That is the Crowleyan Moon Child. She is she is the Scarlet Woman who bringeth forth the Moon Child. The Moon Child is a, is the Thelemic is the Antichrist. It's the Thelemic Messiah. So, uh, Thelema being the religion the religion or magical system that Alistair Crowley uh, founded. Uh, the Moon Child is the one who will um, destroy the. Uh, in short, he'll destroy the old the religions of the old Eon, and he will bring about the new Eon, uh, where the word of the law is. Thelema or will, hence the famous maxim, do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law. We really don't have a, a time or indeed energy to go into all of the ins and outs of Thelemic aeonics here. Mm. Um, but well, I, I am wearing my Thelemic Jesus Current 93 shirt right now, actually. But when we come to brass tax, this is what you want, this is what you get. This is what you want, and this is what you if get. If you want to exercise your will, you will get a demon. <laughs> I mean, there's a, a huge amount that we could still go into about about kind of uh, Jill as the creator because of course she wants she wants to have a baby. That's why she never goes outside because she's trying to protect herself from the radiation. Um, and in that sense, you know, that brings up an interesting question that perhaps we'll pick up in another episode when we cover something about robots. That these are, as well as being the moon child, these are literally our children. This is the next generation of. Um, this is kind of as as the apes created us in a sense through their um, acting according to their nature. So are we creating robots that will kill us in in accordance to our nature? These are our divine and terrifying and destructive progeny. And as as I said earlier, you know that with the with the whole thing about corrupted data, this is what we are passing on to the next generation of life form that's going to be the dominant force on Earth. They're lying if they think that thing's going to kill the enemy. It doesn't care who it kills. It's the first useful thing they've ever given us. What are you talking about, Jill? What are you talking about? That little bastard you just blew away. That's their population control. Our final solution. So what? You gonna let them win? No. You gonna lay down and die? I wanna live. So apparently, uh, to bring this uh, mess of weirdness to a conclusion, uh, I'm going to say a few words about where cyberpunk is now. And the answer to uh, well, the answer to that very simply is we're living in cyberpunk. Cyberpunk is the future that turned out to be true. We didn't get Star Trek; we got Neuromancer. <laughs> and I want to, and once again, I'm going to quote somebody else. Uh, I'm going to quote some. 2014. So this is dark era Nick Lands because this was a one of the one of the most interesting things he's ever actually written. This is his uh, a, a short blog piece he put up called about the Oculus Rift. In fact, wow. yeah, where he says the hype wave carrying us now has cyberpunk characteristics. Anticipated in the 1980s, 1990s, its delivery lag time has drawn burnt-out excitement down to reflexive cynicism by the turn of the millennium. The only thing preventing the first decade of the 21st century being defined by broken promises was the intolerable embarrassment of having to admit that cyberpunk futurism had ever seemed credible at all. Social media rushed in to paste an amnesiac banality over awkward recollections of the lost horizon. 
All those detailed expectations of decentralized crypto fortresses, autonomous cyberspace agencies, anarcho-capitalist digital dynamics, and immersive simulated worlds, so ludicrously dated, are reaching their implementation phase now. Satoshi Nakamoto's blockchain machinery is the primary driver, and there'll be much more on that to come. This, this is already a bit dated. This was four years ago. <laughs> it's the internet-enveloping blockchain that lays down the infrastructure for the first independent techno-intelligences, synthetic agencies modelled as self-resourcing autonomous corporations. It's probably strictly impossible for us to exaggerate what that implies. He can write a good sentence. I'm sorry, he can write a damn good sentence. Uh, I don't... <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, it's a pity about all the racism. It's a pity about, yeah. But, oh. yeah, dear God. Okay, <laughs> I think we're going to have to return to this subject. I, I'm, I'm envisaging something of a kind of round table on kind of where is cyberpunk now, because there is so, there's still so much kind of interesting stuff being discussed or being done in the genre of cyberpunk. But what seems to be now is like cyberpunk, even though it had a very kind of, uh, very grimy kind of um, dystopic aesthetic. It was still kind of like a vision of the future. Whereas now, whenever we think about it, and for the reasons that you've outlined there, it's like we think about it as something of the past. When we do cyberpunk, it is a um, it's a vintage genre. It's ret- It's backward facing. It's like um, when we had uh, is it Paul Verveneer? Yes. Um, his uh, follow-up to Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, um, as brilliant as a lot of parts of that were, one of the interesting things about, well, one of the kind of like slightly sad but kind of curious things about it is the fact that while Blade Runner was a vision of the future, we've had to deliberately make uh, the second Blade Runner a fantasy alternate universe because, you know, we're, we're presenting things that, you know, Atari is still a company and the Soviet Union is still running. Yeah, Blade Runner 2049 is the 2049 of Blade Runner and not our 2049. Yeah, whereas... Which was, all, which was yeah. also a, an absolutely superb and perfect artistic conceit on his part. That was one mm. of the strongest aesthetic elements of the film. And I think we're going to have a lot to talk about with that. But, I mean, yeah, we've got other stuff. We had... It's like you said, I mean, we had like a... We had 90s futurism, which incorporated a lot of elements of cyberpunk, but gave it their own kind of millennial or millennial kind of positive spin. And, kind and of, millenarian. Yeah. And literally millenarian. Yeah. This is what this is. This was the, the great failure of, C, of the Cybernetic Cultural Research Unit, of CCRU, was thinking that what global techno-capitalism is going to produce is a new persistent level of emancipatory intensity, mm. which it did not do, because they were too optimistic and enthusiastic about what was coming not realizing that the tend- that capitalism's tendency to disrupt and delete traditions and hierarchies comes alongside its tendency to establish new hierarchies mm. uh, which is which is exactly what happened which is yeah. exactly precisely what's happened we were this is what this no this is oh, but, quote <laughs> mark fisher ad nauseum here <laughs> do it uh no no i just been in general in general uh, yeah. uh, i think we should i think we should but wrap this one basically up. it's kitsch and it was always kitsch but now it's like it's 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 postmodernism postmodernism has come back to eat itself um but at the same time maybe maybe we maybe there are other questions to be asked and that's something we're going to have to do at another time these are all questions yes yes so i think until such time as when uh we need to stay weird and stay signal Excellent. Yeah. Thank you and good night. Oh, rate us on iTunes and 
the SoundCloud and share us on the internet. Please do. We're a new podcast. Um, we're trying our best. <laughs> we're trying our best. And I hope that you've enjoyed this weird, horrible journey that we've uh, taken you yeah, on. Yeah, thanks for sticking with us. We love um, you. Good night. <laughs>